You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Welcome and bienvenue, welcome, friends, étrangers, strangers, glücklich to see. Je suis enchanté, happy to see you, bleibe recht to stay, willkommen and bienvenue. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is another uh, skeleton crew episode, unfortunately. Uh, this is Nathan Gilmore. I'm an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, and I am joined only by Michael Farmer. Assistant Professor of English from Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how are you doing today? I am pretty good, except today is the first day since I moved to Minnesota that the high was below zero degrees. So it's seven degrees outside, and that's as, or negative seven degrees outside, and that is as warm as it's going to get today. Man, that, okay. I, I don't feel nearly as bad as the 34-degree uh, morning. That we experienced this morning, I thought, "Oh, oh man, you, this is you cold. poor thing. How do you uh, how, do, how do you stand it?" <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it's up to fifty by now. So I, <laughs> I, I lived in Omaha for two and a half years. I don't think I've ever been like it got down to negative eighteen last night, and I think that is the coldest weather I've ever been a part of. Yeah, I think that beats anything that I've ever been in in Indiana. So when, when I went outside this morning, I breathed deep. And first of all, you know, you choke because there's no. It's so cold, but sure. uh, also, it, you know, the feeling you get, like well, the way it tastes when you eat snow. Yeah, yeah, that's how the air tastes. Yeah, I, I, I have breathed in super cold air like that before, so I know exactly the phenomenon. Um, I don't, I don't covet that. I, <laughs> I like cold weather, but this may be taking it a bit too far. Oh man, I can imagine. Uh, well, listeners, as you know, J-Term uh, still has its claws in David Grubbs, our third humanist, but he should be back for our next episode, at which point we will rejoice mightily. Uh, in the meantime, we have some comments on the blog, but they're tied pretty closely to the posts uh, that they're written about, none really about the podcast proper. So I believe we can go ahead and dive into today's topic. One of the Movie events of the Christmas season was a movie musical version of Les Miserables. Uh, it's one, I'll go ahead and say, Michael, that my own uh, church history professor, Paul Blowers, went and saw on Christmas Day, wrote some really nice things about it online, so I figured, okay, maybe this is one of those movies that people are, by and large, going to get behind. Uh, oh, how little did I know that in the following weeks it would become really somewhat of a litmus test uh among the internet circles that i travel about you know the sorts of entertainment that one enjoys uh we'll talk more about that as we roll along i'm sure but to lead us off and to get our greeks and our germans in there early uh friedrich nietzsche in the birth of tragedy points to music as being somehow beyond art and he often nods to wagner's operas as heirs to greek tragedies combining music and narrative uh and being generally this sort of overwhelming super art uh now what little history of opera i know which isn't much also points to the 
neoclassical movement as the sort of continental root of opera. Uh, what sorts of things about opera, musical theater, make it especially Greek, Michael? And in what ways does the combination of music and drama make perfect sense as a sort of integrated art? Well, opera begins um, in Italy in the late 16th century. As far as anybody knows, the first opera that resembles modern opera is Jacopo Perry's uh, Daphne, which uh, is produced in 1598. We have lost it. So nobody knows exactly what that was, but we know uh, we know a little bit more about Perry. He was a Renaissance humanist, and Daphne is a retelling of classical mythology, the story of Orpheus and Daphne. Um, now, Perry, int- interestingly enough, sees this as an attempt to revive Greek tragedy. That's what he wants to do, um, but he is unsuccessful at reviving Greek tragedy, and as you know, the tragedies of the early 17th century don't really look like Greek tragedy. And mm-hmm. what happens instead is he creates this new genre called opera. Um, what opera has in common with tragedy, other than occasional subject matter, is that both are primarily sung rather than spoken. And we have lost that aspect of Greek tragedy. Uh, you, as far as I know, they don't do a lot of productions of them where they are sung rather than spoken. But that does, right. that does appear to be the original form of the, of the tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, in Birth of Tragedy, Nietzsche gives another similarity, which is that both opera and tragedy try to grapple with pessimism in a world that is largely meaningless. Right. Certainly that is true of Greek tragedy. I'm not, I'm not as sure about Renaissance opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Nietzsche blames Euripides, Plato, and Socrates for destroying Greek tragedy. He said that when they came <laughs> along, it stopped being this attempt to grapple with pessimism. And he sees Wagner, at least in Birth of Tragedy, you know, he uh, he goes back on this opinion later, but he sees oh, Wagner yeah. as trying to bring back Greek tragedy in the form of these massive operas. And that is certainly Wagner's self-conception of his mission as well. Um, he called his own work, and you're going to have to forgive me, I don't speak German, and my pronunciation is pretty bad, but I believe it's pronounced Gesamkunstwerk. Sounds good to me. Um, that means total work of art. That is how Wagner referred to his own artistic production. And he hoped, apparently, that his Gesamtkunstwerk would bring together all previous forms of art into one master form, and that that master form would also go beyond individual cultures, and it would express something ultimately human and thus ultimately universal. Right. The, right. The, the, the ring cycle, which I don't know that much about because... I'm just, I've never been in the mood to to dive into 15 hours of opera. Um, but the ring cycle was composed under that system, and he, he abandoned it, or eased off from it at least, later. So if you want to look at the expression of Gesamtkunstwerk, you need to go to the ring cycle. Um, and I, I, I think the idea has some merit. I mean, music, as as you know, if you've read Kierkegaard, expresses what is ultimately abstract and drama by its very nature, expresses the concrete, and sort of bring them together is to express things that literally cannot be expressed otherwise. They come together and are able to cover much more ground. Um, The problem, as I see it, though, is that taste and music change really quickly, and they change much more quickly than taste and drama. And so... um, Oh, that's interesting. and, And so these things are harder to make universal than they initially appear, at least in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many people do you know who even listen to opera? 
Right, right. And, and the ones who do, I mean, do so as a sort of, and, I, and I'm going to get some listener blowback on this, I'm just sure, but I mean, the folks I know who vocally present themselves as opera fans do so as a sort of uh, a statement of cultural belonging, if you will. Right. It, it at least begins as homework, let's let's put it that way. Yeah. I doubt yeah. very many people in the 20th, 21st century are um, naturally attracted to opera. It's something you, you kind of learn to be interested in. You start with something um, relatively accessible. You start with Carmen. Right, right. And, 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 you know, then maybe you can wade further in. I've never made it much past Carmen myself. Mm-hmm. But, but I like Carmen. Or, or to put it another way, I mean, you know, how many people do we know who really got into Phantom of the Opera because first they were gigantic Wagner fans? Right. <laughs> right. And, and so because of that, I think I think the sort of thing Wagner is talking about is more culturally grounded than he thinks it is and wants it to be, as we can tell by how very ununiversal the ring cycle feels today. Yeah. Well, between Wagner and I want to get I want to get to the modern fairly quickly. Between Wagner and the classical American stage musical uh, stand all sorts of musical comedies. You know, whether it's vaudeville, whether it's the you know British uh, small opera, uh, whether it is the I mean, really the figures that deserve their own episode in some ways. Gilbert and Sullivan. If only we could talk about them for an hour. I don't think we could. Uh, but to get us into more recent pieces, what major forces in, I'll, I'll just go ahead and call it the entertainment industry, uh, pointed to the American stage and screen, uh, and brought them towards, you know, what we think of as the sort of Rodgers and Hammerstein American musical. Well, uh, musical theater develops, as you say, in the late 19th century, and really its major developers are Gilbert and Sullivan. It develops from operetta. Um, it comes from light opera, which is, you know, in truth, the very opposite of what Wagner is talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, this sometimes gets called comic opera, but apparently that is not a very good term because it really just means realistic opera. So Carmen, to use, I, I assume everybody knows that opera, mm-hmm. is a comic opera that is... Not particularly comic. Right. <laughs> so it, we're talking about operetta or light opera. Uh, Gilbert and Sullivan are responsible for all sorts of shows uh, that people know. HMS Pinafore, The Mikado, The Pirates of Penzance. These are songs. We, we, we all know songs from these. Even if you don't know that you know songs from these, you know songs from these. <laughs> um, I Am the Very Model of a Modern Major General comes from. Is that from The Mikado? Oh, goodness, you would ask me that. I, I'm not sure, so let's go with it. Poor Little Buttercup, everybody knows that one. That's from uh, mm-hmm. Penafore. Anyway, operettas lead to musical theater, but we, you know, it's not like they're the same genre. An operetta is an opera with acting, and musical theater is a play with songs in it. Right. So they're very similar, but they're not the same thing, and people who are hardcore into one might fight you if you call the other one the same thing. Um. The first modern musical theater where the acting is primary, I believe, is Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein's Showboat, mm-hmm. which premieres in 1927, um, and it's based on Edna Ferber's novel Showboat, which comes out the year before that. And that brings me to another important influence on modern musical theater, which is the Yiddish theater of the Lower East Side of New York City. Um 
it should not escape our reflection that nearly every important figure in early musical theater, at least in New York, is Jewish. You right. have you have the Gershwin brothers, you have Irving Berlin, you have Rogers and Hammerstein. Rogers is of course not his not his family's original name. Uh, <laughs> Jerome Kern, Harold Arlen. The one exception in early musical theater is Cole Porter, but I mean basically everybody else is Jewish, um, and it, it all comes out of this Yiddishkeit is what they call it on the on the Lower East Side. Um, so you really might say that musical theater as we know it is where light opera meets Yiddish theater and forms this new genre. Right, right. Uh, and it hits sound. Uh, it hits film very quickly. Um, the first sound film is also the first film musical, uh, The mm-hmm. Jazz Singer, which is also 1927. Uh, musicals are absolutely huge for a few years, and then there, there's such a glut of them that nobody cares about them anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And it's Busby Berkeley who revives the musical film in the mid-30s. He has these huge choreographed numbers. Again, this is something you, our listeners, if, if they're not immediately aware of it, have probably taken in through cultural osmosis. You would recognize some of the scenes from a Busby Berkeley musical, even if you've never seen one. And by the late 30s and 40s, musicals are back big time in the movie theaters. And so, um, I mean, we can list off a list of famous movie musicals, and a great number of them are from the 1940s. Uh, The Tony Awards, believe it or not, don't begin until 1947. And even then, they don't have a Best Musical Award until 1949. Do you know what the first one, the first... Musical to win Best Tony was? Nope, I do not know. Kiss Me Kate. I'll be. Anyway, that may be more information than you require. <laughs> but uh, Well, and I mean, this is one of those things that I, when I proposed this topic, I thought it would be a nice compact topic. But uh, as I dug into it, I just realized how much we're going to leave out. So I'll just go ahead and give our uh, standard preemptive apology here to our listeners. We are going to leave out your favorite musical. Uh, so we're going feel to make free fun to of it. comment on the blog, email us, do what you need to do to make the case for the one that should have made our episode. But yeah, I mean, that's pretty good survey, Michael. So I, I, will, say, I will say, I will say ahead, this, what now? I will say this before you go on. Um, almost everything I know about musicals, I get from my wife who is a huge fan of this stuff and I'm going to feel bad a little in a little while when I turn on her favorite musical. Oh, <laughs> I can hardly wait. But I will give her credit. Uh, well, Michael, you already mentioned these guys, but you know the musicals that I know best, uh, largely because I, I played clarinets and saxophones in high school and I got put in the pit orchestra a good deal, are those of Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, you know, the little story that I tell people is that I was a mediocre clarinet player and a mediocre saxophone player, but I could switch from clarinet to saxophone in about seven seconds. So uh, what they did was they gave me the book, you know, written for a professional musician playing four different instruments. I couldn't play any of the four very well, but I could play all four, which no one else could. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, for that reason, you know, things like Oklahoma, South Pacific, I mean, the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical really is what I think of when I think of the musical what about these plays, you know, makes them so perennially popular? I mean, these suckers get re- redone, you know, not only in high schools, but I mean, in other contexts as well. What is the staying power of Rodgers and Hammerstein? I should say that I have seen none of their musicals. I have seen this, the film version of The Sound of Music, and I have seen the multicultural television film version of Cinderella from the late 90s, starring Brandy mm-hmm. as Cinderella. 
Um, so you were probably going to have to talk more about this than I, I, I will be able to. But what I gather is that Rogers and Hammerstein were some of the first to have stories that provoked thought instead of just silly escapades. So they're, they're trying to do something a little deeper. Um, mm-hmm. Their music is not incredibly difficult. So high school bands, for example, can play it. And yet yes. at the same time, it feels classic. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it feels even older than it actually is. The plays are adult, but they're not inappropriate for children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can go ahead and say it. The songs are pretty great. I, I said I hadn't seen many of the musicals, but of course I know most of their big songs. Surrey with the Fringe on Top, um, Oklahoma, of course. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Mean, those are all from the same show, I know. But, you know, you, we, we all know <laughs> a bunch of, we know the songs from The King and I. We, know, we, we all know the songs from Sound of Music. And they're good songs. I, I mean, they're well-crafted. They're clever. They're occasionally moving. Um, those are the reasons I came up with, but you're the one who had so much experience in the pit. So why don't you tell me, what is it that keeps sending people back to Rogers and Hammerstein? Well, first of all, I mean, as someone who did play them as, you know, as I said, a fairly mediocre high school musician, uh, I mean, they definitely pushed my ability level, but I was still able to play them. So, I mean, I think that their accessibility has to be part of that picture. You know, I mean, they are not, um, and I realize I'm crossing genres entirely here, but I mean, they're not something like a Stravinsky ballet where it takes, you know, just prodigious technical talent to perform the piece. Uh, you know, I mean, it is something that, you know, has a, the ones that I played in at least, I mean, you know, just have catchy, straightforward driving beats. Uh, and like you said, I mean, you know, they feel like they've always been around because they are sort of part of our American cultural atmosphere. I I was shocked to learn so many of them come from the late forties and fifties because they feel, I would have guessed 20, 30 years older than that. Oh, sure. Sure. And I mean, you know, you've got to think too, that, I mean, this is sort of the, um, the period, you know, when these would have been staged and then revived over and over, you know, this is sort of the post-war America that, you know, is part of our collective consciousness as sort of a golden age. So, I mean, I've got to think that that's also got to be part of their appeal that, I mean, they feel American. Um, even the ones, I mean, you know, like you mentioned, like sound of music or like, uh, South Pacific, which are not set in America, uh, just feel like our songs in a way that a lot of music doesn't. So, I mean, I, I've got to think that, you know, when we take on these things, you know, first of all, a high school band director can, without, I imagine too much anxiety, put this in front of, you know, a high school pit orchestra, put it in front of high school stage performers and, you know, come out with a pretty good production. That nobody's uh, going to complain about. Oh, absolutely. No one would accuse them of trying to be edgy. <laughs> but as you said, and I realize I'm just repeating what you said, but you did such a good job. I mean, I'm just basically doing commentary at this point. But, you know, the unlike, for instance, you know, one year my high school did the Mikado, uh, I mean, it is largely a series of set pieces, right? Uh, there's not really any characters that I would point to in the Mikado that are memorable, you know, in the way that, you know, I mean, you can kind of follow, uh, and shoot, I'm, I'm trying to think of the main characters in Oklahoma now and they're, and they're escaping me. Uh, but I mean, like you said, I mean, it's something to where the story is the driving force and then the songs are sort of commentary on what's happening. So, I mean, it's really, I mean, you know, they are 
the masters of the American stage musical for good reasons, I would say. You also have to remember they're 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 writing at a time when American culture is trying very hard to define itself and to present itself to the world as a unique and worthwhile endeavor. And mm-hmm. so the the American stage musical becomes a big part of that. It, it's distinctively American, and if it is not high art, it at least occasionally has pretensions to high art. Yeah, and that's interesting. I you know i I can't even think about musicals as high art, but they're a heck of a lot of fun. <laughs> so, and again, you know, if our listeners want to take issue with me, I invite you to. Uh, you know, make the case for the stage musical as haute culture, you know, you, or you don't, however you don't think you something like Cats, which I'm sure is going to be our whipping boy throughout this episode, <laughs> you, don't, you don't think something like Cats tries to be high art and fails miserably? Oh, good. And see, I have only ever seen a video version of Cats once. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm familiar with the set pieces, but I'm really not as familiar with that as I am with others. So, I mean... I'll, I'll let you make that claim and I won't contest it. <laughs> I, I, I would just say a great deal of mid-century musical theater sits in the comfortable middle ground between high art, which, you know, and, and obviously there's high art happening at the same time. Um, the same year Kiss Me Kate wins Best Musical, Death of a Salesman wins Best Play. Yeah, that, yeah, no, that's a real good parallel. I was actually going to bring up Arthur Miller as someone who's running parallel to these phenomena. So, but at the same time, it would be above something like television, which, right? Which, which 50s in the television, 50s, anyway. Yeah, in the fifties, that's still not even considered something that would aspire to art. It's just a way to sell commercials. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still arguably just a way to sell commercials, but now it at least aspires. So, you, you know, the fifties are the great age of the middle brow. Mm-hmm. And and uh, the the stage musical seems to me part of the middle brow. I mean, this stuff's getting reviewed in the New Yorker or the Ultimate Middle Brow magazine, right? Mm-hmm. It's getting reviewed in the New Yorker next to, uh, well, next to Death of a Salesman and next to classical music stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I I would say it at least has a claim on being something higher than just pop culture, higher than just entertainment. Yeah, I guess that's true. And I mean, I, you know, even now, I mean, a stage musical is a different cultural phenomenon than, for instance, going to the concert of, you know, what I would think of as a sort of, and I I realize MTV doesn't really exist anymore like it did in the 80s, but someone you'd see on MTV. (laughs) Going to a Katy Perry concert is different than going to a stage musical? There you go. Perfect, Perfect. But is it different from going to see Shrek the musical? Ah yes, you know there's there's still plenty of lo- what I would consider lowbrow musicals. Oh man, mm-hmm. I remember watching the Tonys with Victoria the year Shrek won all his awards, and she uh, yelled at the television for <laughs> hours. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, now that you're bringing us a little bit more modern, Michael, I mean my own favorite musicals uh, remain the rock operas, those shows that start to incorporate the instrumentation of post Elvis pop music. Uh, and my favorites, I'll go admit are those ones where the story take place, takes place in a setting where electric guitars have no business intruding. Uh, now Andrew Lloyd Webber is going to be one of the biggies here with Avita, Phantom of the opera. Uh, but I mean the, 
recently controversial musical version of Les Miserables in certain productions also brings in some rock guitar. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, Michael, I mean, this is one of the most fun kinds of entertainment from recent decades. Uh, but some consider these shows pretty much all emoting and no art. Uh, go ahead and give me your take on the more recent crop of musicals, and let's let's park on these for a while because these these are the ones. If you are, you know, someone from our rough age range, these are what we think of first when we think of musicals. I think there's an episode of King of the Hill where Hank goes to a Christian music festival. And mm-hmm. he tells one of the Christian rock stars, you're not making Christianity better, you're just making rock and roll worse. <laughs> and I can't help but think about that when I think about Weber. Okay. Because uh, to me, Phantom of the Opera is just terrible rock music and terrible Broadway. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a show that exists so that they can smash that chandelier on the stage every night. Oh, but what a great gag! What a great riff that is! You need, I... <laughs> you, you need to reread your Aristotle, my friend. It is it is it is possible to invoke pity and fear through through a spectacle, but it is an inferior form of art. <laughs> no, I, uh, I I don't have much taste for the rock musicals, and this includes my wife's favorite, which is Rent, which I think is just dreadful music. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I, I I hate to say it because it means so much to her, and I even like Love Ohem. Lobo M, but um, man, most of the songs in that musical are lousy. Uh, <laughs> I like. Um, now, let me ask you this as a follow up to that. I mean, uh, do you have the same opinion of the musical Hair? Oh, Hair is one of the worst things that's ever happened to American culture. <laughs> do you like? Do you like Hair? What now? Do you like Hair? Oh, I do, and I oh. mean, it is entirely because I remember hearing it, you know, on vinyl as a child. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I mean, have, I, you I know, no it, it is entirely a visceral, nostalgic love for hair. I mean, I watched it here a few years ago when Mary was out of town one week, and I mean, I'm not going to even try to make a case for it as great art, but I still have fun with it. And you know, the mo- the most loathsome of all, though, is the jukebox musical. All right, give me an example. Um, moving out, the the Billy Joel musical. Oh, they, they take they take the songs in a given pop canon and then they construct a hastily built story around it. And it's supposed to be, I mean, moving out, I, I, you know, I should be fair. I haven't actually seen moving out. I I just object to it on principle. Rock of ages is another good example, which is eighties metal. They just Uh made a terrible movie out of it last summer. Mm -hmm. There's a Bob Dylan jukebox musical. There's an Elvis Presley jukebox musical. Mm Mm-hmm. There's an ABBA jukebox music. Mama Mia, of course, yeah. I'm I'm waiting for the Bruce Springsteen one, which if it's not called Glory Days, I don't know what they're gonna call it. <laughs> I, I I just I, I have no patience for it. I, and of course, the jukebox musical goes back before that. There's um oh one of the Gershwin musicals is essentially a jukebox musical of Gershwin songs, and I can't remember what it is. So maybe I shouldn't blame that on rock musicals but yeah that is not my that is not my bag i i I just Mm -hmm. i am not interested in rock musicals sorry do you want to defend do you want to defend weber i mean oh gosh i feel like somebody ought to he's clearly his are not among my favorites in this sweep i mean i like you know i I will say i you know i really do like avita uh, largely because of Antonio Banderas's production or performance in the movie version of it, um, that gave me a new appreciation for Banderas that I just didn't have back when he was playing opposite Sly Stallone in action movies. 
Did you just reference the movie Assassins? I did indeed. <laughs> Man. <laughs> I don't know what sad is the fact that you referenced it or that I caught it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, um, and I mean, just we've got to mention it. I mean, since we're in, in, you know, since people are still writing about it on the Internet, but, you know, Les Miserables, I mean, it's not one that has followed me well across the decades. Um, which I guess is a, a reference to the plot line as well. Uh, but you know, I mean, it's definitely one that I can look at and say, all right, you know, that is, if it's not high art and that's what, you know, the New Yorker critic that you posted on Facebook was arguing, uh, it's still a lot of fun, you know? Uh, have you seen the, have you seen the film version? No, I've not. No, I've not. I haven't either, so. but I listened to some of the music on YouTube because I don't, I don't know what it's like at a manual, but at crown, the students just won't shut up about that movie. Oh, really? See, I'm my I'm teaching mainly English majors this semester, so I haven't heard much of it. My English majors are all about it. But anyway, I went and listened to Anne Hathaway singing "I Dreamed a Dream," and it is like it, it is so bad. I thought it was a joke. Really? Okay. She's she's going for emotion instead of actually singing the song, and she's so flat. I mean, it is awful. I'm not one of those people who can who can immediately tell that something's off key. So uh-huh. so it's pretty bad if if I if I notice it. And I mean it is I it, it is I, I would call it unlistenable. I, I, I cannot fathom why anybody would like it except that they just want to shut their brain off and cry. I gotcha. And as someone now, who I, has I, no desire I, ever to shut his brain off and just cry, I, I just I, I have no interest in the movie. Interesting. Okay. Now I've not seen the movie, but I, I did actually see a traveling production of it, uh, in actually in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, that, I mean, again, I mean, it was well produced. It was well sung. Uh, I mean, it was an enjoyable experience, you know, so it's interesting that they sort of went for that. I, I, I don't know what to call it. I mean, what would you call that style of performance, Michael? Emotive, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I, I was going to go for that, but that didn't seem quite right. But at any rate, I mean, the one in Knoxville was just very polished and very well performed. Which so. is what I want out of a musical. I, I, you know, let let the let the lyrics of the songs inspire emotion if you want them to. I don't need you to be crying. Mm-hmm. To to me, the most emotionally effective song in a musical in my lifetime was uh, um, for good from Wicked. Okay, and see, I've not seen Wicked. You should so. you should at least listen to the song. We saw it in at the Fox Theater, a tra- as you say, a traveling production. I mean, it, it's it's excellent. But the <laughs> the song for good is is really an emotionally moving song that they don't have to over sing, or and they certainly don't have to weep through to make it <laughs> moving. I mean, they over sing it because you know Broadway is oversung. It's it's the style. But uh, yeah, I, I, compare that to uh, I Dreamed a Dream, and I, to me, there's no comparison. All right, fair enough. And of course, I mean, you know, the the big emotive productions, I mean, are the ones that we think of. But I mean, I also can't let this part of our show pass without making mention at least of the movie musical version of Little Shop of Horrors, which was just, I mean, a terrible, terrible bit of fun. <laughs> I haven't seen it since I was a kid and it scared me so badly. That's all I remember. Oh, and see, I, you know, I, I mean, first of all, I mean, Levi Stubbs, who, you know, does all the vocals for the plant. I mean, just, he, he's too much fun to contain. Uh, you know, Rick Moranis, I could take or leave, but Steve Martin in that movie, 
doing, you know, musical numbers is just great. I love it. <laughs> I'll have to go back and watch that one. I know it's well regarded, but I haven't seen it. And yeah, well, I and I, you know, it's fascinating because, you know, it is a an over-the-top, I mean, very self-aware movie musical based on a stage musical, which is based on a truly terrible 1960 horror movie. Hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> I mean, it's great stuff, but we're not here to talk about Little Shop of Horrors. We're here to talk about musicals more generally. So, uh, are there any other, you know, sort of rock musical era pieces that you want to talk about before we move on? I'm trying to think if there's one I really like. You know, we saw Next to Normal on my honeymoon. We we saw it mm-hmm. in, on Broadway. And I don't love the music, but the music fits the um, fits the show, which is about mental illness. And so mm-hmm. the, the music is on edge and, and kind of atonal. Okay. And, and you know, heavy. And, and um, I, I, you know, I, I don't remember any of the songs. I remember the basic feeling. But that's a good musical that I think succeeds despite the songs not being classics. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any of the others that I want to hit before we move on. Uh, but we'll just go ahead and roll on. I mean, we've we've got a wrap up coming at the end. So if I think of something, I'll just bring it up then. Uh, because I have been perhaps unethically, Michael, keeping you away from the Disney movie musical. Uh, I mean, these are what people think of when they think of Disney feature films. Uh, So I'm going to turn you loose on this. Uh, As long as you promise to talk about the fact that Disney movie musicals went away for a few years, but seem to have made a comeback recently with Frog Princess and Tangled. At least a little bit. Um, it seems to me that the Disney musicals usually follow the stage musicals by a few years. And so if you look at the ones from the 40s and 50s, uh, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, these are these are basically Rodgers and Hart style music, mm-hmm. um, often written by the Sherman Brothers, who uh, true legends of Disneyana. They wrote uh, every pre-1970 Disney song you've ever loved, including most of the ones at the theme park. Uh, Roger, Roger and Richard. No, I can't now. I see. I'm such a jerk. I can't remember their names. Anyway, the Sherman brothers, mm-hmm. um, they wrote all the songs for Mary Poppins as well, which is a live action Disney film, which I, I think has 10 songs. Everybody in the world loves, <laughs> uh, this is replaced in the eighties and especially in the nineties with the Disney Renaissance with, um, the biggest Broadway names of the time. So you get Alan Menken and Tim Rice and Elton John, who would just come off of, or maybe was about to go into, I can't, I don't know the timeline very well, off of Aida, uh, and and they're writing all the songs. And so if you listen to the the songs from The Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin, they they feel very much like the Broadway of the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, very good. I mean, the, those those songs are excellent. Right, um, Menken also did Little Shop of Horrors. I'll go ahead and oh, throw that he? in one more time. And Tim Rice, <laughs> Tim Rice did uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, didn't he? Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I mean, these are these are big names. They were they were smart in going to these guys to do it, and it worked for them. I mean, again, now part of it is that I was a kid when those movies came out, but to me, those songs are fairly indelible. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you compare them to something like the Disney movies from the '60s and '70s, which don't tend to have very good. Music. Uh, well, I shouldn't. The Jungle Book has the Bare Necessities, which is yeah. a great song. Um, 
Rod- Robin Hood has the Phony King of England, which I played on the podcast that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but for the most part, the, but as far as the heavy hitter Disney songs, those right. aren't the ones you first think of. Right, right. Nobody says their favorite Disney song is uh, "Phony King of England," although maybe they should because it's an awesome song. <laughs> <laughs> but even even that feels a little bit like the uh, the Broadway of the time because it's it's a little more rock oriented, a little looser. Mm-hmm. You, you, I, I I think approaching Disney as a separate phenomenon is is something that doesn't make a lot of sense because I, I think for the most part, they are bound to the Broadway of their time. And it's interesting, um, in the mid to late 90s, they started putting stuff back out on Broadway. The The Lion King, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Julie Taymor, became a huge hit. And then n- now a lot of a lot of uh, Disney stuff goes back out to Broadway. They had a Beauty and the Beast. I think they had a Little Mermaid. I know Mary Poppins has been on Broadway for years now because mm-hmm. it was there when I was in New York. Uh, when we got married. And so, um, yeah, I, I think, I think largely the Disney films tend to be bound to their time, except they tend to be very good examples of it. Um, yeah. And it, a lot of kids get introduced to Broadway through Disney films. Mm-hmm. Certainly. I think it's the first musicals. A lot of us watch. Oh, sure. It certainly was in my case. Do you have a favorite, uh, Disney song? Oh, goodness. Favorite song? That's tough. I mean, Lion King. I mean, it's my favorite Disney musical, easily. It's interesting because you would have been a teenager when that movie came out, right? Oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's just so well done that I mean, it's hard to think of a better one. Well, fair enough. <laughs> I uh... well, I mean, and I mean, you know, I, you talked about the uh, composers. I mean, they brought in Nathan Lane, one of the, you know, I mean one of the undeniable heavy hitters of Broadway. I mean, to do one of the gag characters in that one. I mean, which just if Nathan Lane hadn't been there, that movie would have been so serious that it would have become, you know, hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and talk about, talk about movies where the, the music fails to lift it. <laughs> oh yeah. Whew. Yeah. I, uh, you know, Jungle Book's my favorite Disney movie. But I oh, think, interesting. I think my favorite Disney song is from the parks. I love uh, the Carousel of Progress theme. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow, which is <laughs> okay. a Sherman Butter song. You know that song? No, I don't. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow <laughs> waiting at the end of every day. It's from the Carousel of Progress. Okay, I'll believe you. There you go. <laughs> yeah, you got to remember, it's now been 30 years since I was in a Disney park. Fair enough. <laughs> well, what about, I mean, you know, I mean, after I think Hercules was the one that finally killed the Disney musical, although I could be wrong there. Uh, but I mean, here in the last couple of years, you know, the Frog Princess was, you know, a a, a line drawing animated movie musical. Princess and, and the then, Frog. What now? Princess and the Frog. Oh, is that what it was? Oh, yeah. my bad, my bad. Uh, and then Tangled, I mean, brought back Alan Menken, uh, but it was, you know, 3D animation, but done in a musical style. So, I mean, as far as you can tell, I mean, you know more about the inner workings of Disney than I keep up with. Is this a trend that they're looking to revive? or The last Disney musical before Princess and the Frog was actually Home on the Range. Oh, god! A movie nobody remembers. <laughs> And that was also the last 2D Disney movie before Princess and the Frog. I think what happened was 
they were making crappy movies. Yeah, they really were. The, the, you know, you had Home on the Range, you had Brother Bear, which actually may have been after Home on the Range. Uh-huh. You, you had, uh, oh my gosh, um, the Atlantis one, Treasure Planet, all, all of these terrible 2D movies. And Disney decides, well, the problem is... Let's not is, forget Hercules. Hercules, Hercules at least has its moments. <laughs> have you seen Brother Bear? And see, I've not seen Brother Bear. I, Brother Bear is I've beautifully animated, but what a terrible movie. Anyway, um, so, so somebody at Disney decides the problem is not we should, you know, we're making bad movies. It's that we're making 2D movies and, and kids only care about 3D movies. And, you mm-hmm. know, this was at the time when Pixar could do no wrong. Mm-hmm. And so Disney, start, instead of making terrible 2D movies, they start making terrible 3D movies. So you get, uh, oh, what are the ones that come out? Chicken Little, Meet the Robinsons. I mean, just uh-huh. terrible, terrible movies. It's not until John Lasseter comes in it and becomes head of Disney Animation as well as Pixar that uh, they, they start making good movies again. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lasseter is the one who is responsible for bringing back traditional line animation in the form of Princess and the Frog, which was not a huge success, but which I really liked. And I thought the music was really good. The music is by Randy Newman, of course, who does all the Pixar movies or does Mm -hmm. many of the Pixar movies. Uh, Until you said something, I had forgotten that Tangled had music in it. Although I liked Tangled. Well, and I mean, I, you know, I remember seeing it and thinking, man, this is the catchiest Disney soundtrack I've heard in a long time. Cause I actually saw it before I saw princess and the frog. And, you know, sure enough, the end credits rolled, and there's Alan Menken, and I'm like, well, that's why. I... <laughs> but but I, I don't know why they thought the problem was 2D animation. Uh, like, like what, it, what, what, sort of, what sort of echo chamber you have to live in to think that's the problem. Right, right. I mean, no, anybody, I, anybody I, who saw Brother Bear or Treasure Planet <laughs> knows exactly what the problem is, and it doesn't have anything to do with whether it's made by hand or by computers. I, I do fear mm-hmm. we've lost 2D animation forever, but that's kind of another... Uh, that's kind of another story. So you don't think the princess or princess and the frog has brought it back? Have you seen another one? No, I don't suppose I have. And I, as far as I know, there's not another one in development, although there might be. I haven't paid attention to that stuff in a few years. I mean, okay. uh, did you see Wreck-It Ralph in the theater? No, I didn't. Oh, that's that Wreck-It Ralph's such a good movie. Um, but uh, the big, you know, they had a short before it, and the short was some of the best animation I've seen. And I believe it was 2d. So, okay. You know, it lives on in some form. Hmm. Well, and then, I mean, I, and I realize I'm going off the track here, but I mean, then there was that, that sort of transition that Pixar made with toy story where you don't have the characters doing songs, but you have, you know, Randy Newman sort of singing recitatives about, plot point <laughs> right yeah yeah which is much more like a regular much more like a regular movie yeah yeah but i mean you know you it's undeniable that you know these are not pop songs that are appropriated for it i mean it is randy newman singing about a guy showing up in a rocket <laughs> you know and yeah they become these huge pop hits you've got a friend in me is his biggest hit ever i believe yeah yeah well, ask him how he feels about that <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, that's all sorts of amusing. That that's what Randy Newman's going to be remembered for. Yeah. No, and nobody. By the way, nobody's more amused by it than Randy Newman. 
Oh, I can just imagine. I mean, he's, he strikes me as a person who probably has a sense of humor about himself. Anyway, we ought to do an animation episode, but this ain't it, so I don't want to get no, too No, you're right, field. you're right. But I, I just figured, you know, musicals, you got to talk a little bit of Disney. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, now that we've gone Disney, let's go theological for a little bit. Um, and again, there's just so much to take on here. I realized when I started bringing up these notes, but... You know, whether it is the scarcely Bible anymore VeggieTales musicals or whether it's the genuinely masterful DreamWorks film, The Prince of Egypt, uh, movie musicals and stage musicals, though I've not seen any of the biggies on stage there, uh, they love them some Bible. Uh, so in what ways is that a good thing? In what ways is it dangerous? In what ways is it fabulous? <laughs> fabulous. Uh, Larry Norman has a line in his song Reader's Digest where he says, This time last year, people didn't want to hear. They looked at Jesus from afar. Now they say he's a superstar. So I think if you listen to Larry anyway, getting the Bible on people's minds is a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The bad thing is that very few of those musicals come from an Orthodox perspective. Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar don't have resurrections. Mm -hmm. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat largely leaves God out of things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, it should be easy enough to see why. Those stories are indelible. There are also stories that you can count on people to know the basic outline of. And yeah. so when the musical fills them in in int- unusual ways, it is noticeable and thought-provoking. Mm-hmm. Now, I-, I haven't seen Prince of Egypt since high school. I remember it being good. But uh, tell me what's masterful about it. Well, I mean, what I like about it, I mean, I always bring it up when people – try to sing the praises of, for instance, 300 or uh, the awful Zemeckis Beowulf that's the regular whipping boy of this podcast, I say, all right, if you want to see appropriation done well, look at Prince of Egypt. Because, I mean, there are undeniable changes to the story going on there, right? I mean, Aaron becomes a side character. Uh, Pharaoh and Moses become the brother figures. And, you know, it becomes this sort of clash of destiny story. Uh, where the destiny of the Pharaoh and the destiny of Moses cannot both exist by the end of the movie. And, you know, it it becomes this genuinely tragic story uh, that really isn't there in the biblical text. So what I tell them is, I mean, they have drastically altered the story, but they've done so in a way that is interesting, and it's good storytelling, and it develops characters in ways that you didn't expect. Whereas, you know, something like, 300 takes the genuinely fascinating character of Xerxes as Herodotus uh, presents him and, you know, turns him into a video game cutscene. That's what Zack Snyder's good at. Go ahead. I said that's what Zack Snyder is good at, though. (laughs) Too bad that wasn't a musical, huh? I imagine they could make it one. (laughs) Uh, You know, I... I mean, it would be a lot of, you know, shadow scenes and spraying blood and set pieces, but I could at least avoid it this time. (laughs) (laughs) I never saw it, so I I consider myself lucky. Well, it's one of those, you know, I I, I consider it one of the truly bad examples of appropriation. Now, I've not seen Troy, I've not seen Arthur, so I mean, I don't know how it stacks up against those, but... Among the appropriations of ancient texts that I have seen, that's one of the worst, if not the worst. And yes, I, I did just say that right after mentioning Zemeckis' Beowulf. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, for instance, the 
and I was hoping you'd say a little bit about them, but I mean, the VeggieTales musical genre, uh, I think that's one of those places where you can definitely see on a smaller scale, you know, some of the concerns that people get. Because, I mean, you know, one of the things that people are always writing about is that, you know, it tends to flatten out some of the theological complexity of Bible stories, you know, so that it's a basic, simple, moralistic tale. And, you know, that's that's not entirely bad if you're setting it in front of, you know, 10-year-olds. Uh, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of high school youth groups use those as educational tools loosely considered. And, I mean, that always, that, that makes me uneasy, I'll have to admit. And I think, you know, part of it is the limitations of, you know, the musical theater genre, right? I mean, you've got to have something that you can sing about. Uh, partly it's a, you know, an outgrowth of, you know, what I would call, you know, what Christian Smith calls, I'll, I'll put it that way, you know, sort of the therapeutic moral deism, uh, that characterizes so much of American Christianity. But, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, I think that it can be done extraordinarily well. And I keep pointing back to DreamWorks on that one, but it's also something that can flatten things out in some pretty egregious manners. Well, Michael, I've had the wheel for most of this conversation, so I'm going to let you set the agenda for the home stretch. Obviously, uh, as I discovered as I worked on this, the genre of musical theater is just enormous. It's huge. It's vast. And adding movies makes it an even bigger topic. Uh, what high point have I missed that you want to comment on, either from direct experience or in relation to criticism that you've read? The uh, the propensity of musicals from about 1965 on to be countercultural or the voice of the marginalized. Okay, say more. Um, you know, you we already we've already talked about Hair, which of course is the classic countercultural musical, but the 60s are full of them. You have Oh Calcutta. The the sex farce you have cabaret which is I I you know I love cabaret the uh, the the opening music for today is obviously from cabaret um, mm-hmm. you you have rent in the nineties and, and all of these things are trying to present the viewpoint of the oppressed I would say to to you know varying degrees of success mm-hmm. um, also you get the uh, topsy-turvy musicals like Wicked, where, you know, Wicked is the story of Wizard of Oz from the Wicked Queen's perspective. Right. And the, these things, too, are, are telling, in telling the other side of the story, are presenting the voice of the oppressed. And, you know, the, the reasons for this should be obvious. The, the, the sorts of people who go into musical theater are people who are usually unpopular in high school, right? These, these are, <laughs> you know, it, it, it tends to be people who, who feel not at home in the, in mainstream society. And so theater has gradually become a place for outcasts and good for it. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't even say it's gradually become a place for outcasts that it was originally such a Jewish institution suggests that even then it was a place for outcasts. Oh, sure. Sure. But, but by the, by the time the sixties rolled around, that becomes, if not the only theme, the dominant theme in musical theater. Uh, And again, some, some, um, shows do this very, very well. And some shows are terrible. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> now, what's interesting is in the in the 21st century, it it seems to me to be moving back the other direction, as uh, Broadway gets Disneyfied. Um, mm-hmm. it, it it seems to be much less about uh, 
being a voice for the oppressed and much more about jukebox musicals, adaptations of movies, things like that. Right. Unless you are an oppressed ogre. Right. (laughs) Although in its way, Shrek is itself an example of the same thing that Wicked does. Although I think the, I think the Shrek movies are so unbelievably crass and ugly that I have no interest in them. Yeah, I still remember, I and this is off the beaten track, but I, I remember a fellow grad student when I was a master's student at UGA presented a paper on the subversive cultural logic of Shrek. And I, I tried so hard not to smirk. It's just the it's it's just the easiest commentary ever. If you want to see that same thing done well, look at the Disney film Enchanted, which is much more ambivalent about its relationship to fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Um, and not at all crass. I, I hate children's entertainment that puts dirty jokes in there for adults. I really, I really yeah. hate that. If if you can't if you can't make it appeal to adults and children without without, you know, putting making Pinocchio a transvestite, then then maybe maybe yeah. you should rethink what you're doing. <laughs> maybe you should just make a film for adults. Right, right, or not make one. But any, any, maybe. <laughs> any, anyway, that that's that's the movement I see in musical theater. And again, it's not everything, of course. There, I mean, a, a show like Cats that's 1981. I don't think that has anything to do with the uh, the marginalized. Right, but, right. But, but it's a it's a major through line in American musical theater, and uh, one that I wonder if it isn't disappearing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the only thing that I would add the big picture idea that I think I probably didn't treat well enough in my own notes, Michael, I mean, is sort of the opposite side of that. And I mean, you already pointed to it, you know, the, the idea that it's the unpopular kids that get into musical theater. And I think that, you know, the emotivism that the sort of cultured despisers of Les Miserables hate so much, uh, is precisely what makes them so appealing to people in their teens uh, and, you know, like I said, I, and just to recap for our listeners, Michael posted this very snobbish review from the New Yorker, uh, in which the reviewer says, you know, movie musicals are the stuff of eight to 14 year old girls. Actually, and actually, we, I, I, I need to correct you. He is not, he does not say that about all movie musicals. He says that particularly about Les Mis. Yeah. Okay. He okay. goes, he goes out of his way to propose alternate musical, uh, movie musicals to watch. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. But still, I mean, to make it the stuff for eight-year-olds just struck me as, I mean, snobbish to the point of being goofy. <laughs> I mean, I that's a, you know, well, yeah, I enjoyed that when I was eight. I <laughs> Like, oh, give me a break, dude. Uh, but what I will say is that, you know, I mean, the the over-the-top emotive character of so many of these musicals, especially the ones that I remember best, which are, you know, the ones we talked about uh, with the rock instrumentation. Uh, You know, I think that, and and I'm still working this out, Michael, so I'm sort of floating it your way so that you can do something with it beyond what I can right now. Uh, I think that there is a place for that kind of entertainment, especially the sort uh, that doesn't point towards a sort of nihilism that so much entertainment geared towards teens tends to become. Oh, sure. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I want to give, you know, Les Miserables and even Phantom of the Opera two cheers for being the right sort of stuff to dig into when you're a teenage kid. Although just imagine what Plato would say about Les Mis. 
<laughs> I mean, not to tip my hand too much, but we'll be doing a uh, episode on Plato's aesthetics mm-hmm. next time I'm at the helm. Um, so, I mean, we'll, we'll get to talk about that sort of thing. But the the point I liked in that New Yorker piece was the extent to which a show like Les Mis is all about emotion, undifferentiated from anything else, just just a pure flood of emotion. Which, um, again, I, I saw that show at the, again at the Fox Theater when I was in college, but I sat behind a column and I was in the very last row, so I don't remember that much. <laughs> it certainly didn't move me. But uh-huh. the, the the reactions I have observed from other people with the, with the movie have been just, you know, submit yourself to emotion. And uh, our listeners will know that I am not the sort of person who submits himself <laughs> to emotion. <laughs> right, right. And I guess, given the choice between a sort of cynicism on the cheap and a flood of emotion. I'll choose the latter for teenagers. I'll, I'll take that. So, like I said, you know, I'm not going to give it three cheers, but I will give two cheers for the movie musical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which might make me just as bad a snob as I'm trying to critique, but that's okay. Uh, at any rate, I think we're going to wrap it up there, Michael. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on and talking about, you know, some pieces that, Victoria likes a lot better than you do. You humored me nonetheless. Uh, next week's show is going to have to remain a mystery right now. We might announce it on the Facebook page or we might announce it on the blog. It's hard to say, but right now we haven't decided even who's going to be at the helm, much less what the subject matter is. So this might be a surprise coming up. Uh, in the meantime, though, uh, go ahead and check us out on the blog. Uh, christianhumanist.org check us out on our facebook page the christian humanist podcast uh, email us at the christian humanist at gmail.com give us lots and lots of stars at itunes write us some reviews there do what you can to get the word out uh, we do this for fun uh, but we also do it for our listeners so the more people we can get on board the better uh, we love hearing from you so tell us what you think what did we miss uh, what musicals are we overrating? What musicals did we dismiss too easily? Uh, all sorts of things we'd like to hear from you. So as we sign off here in behalf of the still absent David Grubbs and poor Michael Farmer, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome. Friends, étrangers. Stranger, glücklich zu sehen, je suis enchanté. Happy to see you, bleibe recht to stay. Willkommen and bienvenue, welcome. Im Cabaret, au Cabaret, du Cabaret. Meine Damen und Herren, Mesdames et Messieurs, Ladies and gentlemen, good evening, bonsoir, good evening. Wie geht's? Comment ça va? Do you feel good? Ich bin euer confrancier. Je suis votre compère. I am your host and sage. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome. Im cabaret, au cabaret, du cabaret. Leave your troubles outside. So, life is disappointing. Forget it. In here, life is beautiful. The girls are beautiful. Even the orchestra 
is beautiful. So don't go away. Who knows? Tonight we may lose the battle. Here's Hagen, welcome and bienvenue. Welcome in cabaret, oh cabaret, to cabaret. We are here to serve you. Je suis enchantée. Enchantée, madame. 